Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 6, How Badly Wrong I Can Be. It was early evening on the 11th of November 1992. I was sat in the passenger seat of my friend's car, motoring along the road behind the backs of the colleges in Cambridge, on the way back to the railway station, to take me home to London after a lovely day off with these good friends. It was wintry and dark, and there wasn't a lot to see, except for the wonderful views across the river of King's College Chapel lit up by the usual floodlights. And then, all of a sudden, the lights went off. King's College Chapel plunged into darkness, just as we went by. Both driver and passenger in that car were curates in the Church of England. We had a lot in common. We'd been at university and run the Christian Union together but we were in very different moods in that car on that journey. He was elated and I was numb with grief. Just before getting into the car, we'd heard the news that the Church of England General Synod had voted to ordain women priests. My friend was far too sensitive and kind to celebrate in front of me. I imagined that when he dropped me off, he returned home and danced round the room with his wife. So we motored along in silence, both too polite to annoy the other by talking about the news that divided us. I can't remember what was said, but I remember seeing the light suddenly going off over King's Chapel, and I felt the light had gone out not just over that beautiful building, but over the whole Church of England. So I'm one of the losers, the biggest battle of my ordained life, whether to bring women into the church leadership, and I was on the wrong side of it. I was one of the naysayers, and we lost. Put simply, we lost because the other side had a better vision of the church. They had more grace, more love, more realism, a better understanding of how gender relationships were changing inside and outside of church. We lost because we deserved to lose. The supporters of women's ministry had more insights into the church's past and a better vision of its future. We got it wrong. I got it wrong. Of course, somewhere along the way, I learned to live with it and come round to supporting the women who became my colleagues. But it took time. I was part of the conservative evangelical wing of the Church of England who believed that both families and churches should be led by men. We saw this not just as a cultural convention but something to do with the way God created the two sexes to be different and to work together as laid out in the Bible. We weren't stupid, we knew perfectly well how intelligent and capable women are. For goodness sake, I'd spent most of my adult life with Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister. But we couldn't get away from St Paul's insistence 
on male headship in church leadership. We saw our calling as to follow the apostles' instructions as to how to build a church. So if St Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, then neither could we permit any such thing. And of course we were painfully aware how countercultural this was, but to be honest, no more so than many other parts of our faith. And yes, we did know just how unpopular we were in the wider church. But get this, our churches, the conservative churches, were often thriving. Many of the biggest and most successful churches at the time may have had contemporary music, but the religion was Bible-bashing conservative with strong theology and strict morals. We saw this as God blessing our faithfulness to revealed religion, standing firm against the godless tide of liberal ways seeping into the church. So we didn't mind too much being out of step with society because we thought God was on our side. And if anyone needed any proof, our religion was thriving. We thought the future was ours. For many of us, the unspoken strategy went something like this. Step one, make the whole Church of England conservative like us. Then step two, convert the nation to Christ. If the church had any sense, it would listen to our conservative agenda, not to bolshy feminists running shrinking liberal churches. I felt quite comfortable talking about the issue in my own little clique of conservative male clergy. But in the wider church, it was pretty awkward, bearing mind that I was ordained deacon alongside several women who would not go on to the second step of ordination, ordination as priest the following year as I did. My main coping strategy was to try and avoid talking about it. It was just too painful. At diocesan clergy meetings, the supporters of ordaining women wanted to keep talking about it. Us conservatives preferred to avoid the subject, hoping that the problem would go away. In my first year as a curate, one of the trials I dreaded most was when it was my turn to go and meet the diocesan bishop. I put it off as long as I could get away with made the latest possible appointment that his secretary would allow. I trawled off to Bishop's Lodge in suburban South London. He was a prominent supporter of the movement to ordain women as priests. Most bishops wanted it to go through, and he was an evangelical who felt positively, well, evangelical about bringing round his own constituency. I was dreading the inevitable interrogation about the women's issue. After about 20 minutes chit-chat about my theological tutors, who he knew, I could see he was bringing the meeting to a close. Is this too good to be true, I asked myself. We bowed our heads for a prayer, and I got up quietly encouraged that I was going to escape unscathed. But just as I was getting up to go, he asked, 
Oh, David, tell me what the people in your parish make about women's ministry. Well, Bishop, you know, I said some are in favour, but some are against. And then the devastating supplementary. Yes, David, but what about you? Where do you stand? Ah! I can't remember what I said, but I can remember the trauma of the experience. If his aim had been to welcome me to his diocese, then the meeting could not have been a more miserable failure. I felt hounded. I can't remember what he said, but he left me with the, morn with the warning. Women's ministry is going through, and I don't want the awkward squad making any problems in this diocese. When the motion went through, some Conservatives pretended that they'd supported it all along. But that option wasn't available to me. My fingerprints were all over this crime. I'd preached against it. I wrote a pamphlet. Fellow Conservative clergy paid me to distribute amongst their flocks. So I think I need to fess up. I opposed the ordination of women priests. The biggest change the Church has made in my ordained life. The biggest decision the Church faced. And I want to say to all those people I fought against, you were right and I was wrong. You were right to push it and I was wrong to resist it. Ordaining women to the priesthood and the episcopacy was the right thing to do. What did I get wrong? Not the capability of women, not the importance of women, not the goodness, holiness and effectiveness of female Christian ministry. What I got wrong was this very basic thing. What is the church? I made the mistake of thinking that the church is a community of today's people trying to recreate the community of the New Testament in the first century. But the church is not the New Testament club. The church is a community that began with the apostles and then evolves with every generation. And for all my years studying the Bible, I could not see the wood for the trees about what the Bible is. The Bible is not timeless truth. And it's not a law, but a story. I was overly beholden to St Paul's guidance about how to make the churches of his day avoid scandalising their social norms, when right in front of me the church of my own day was offending the gender norms of good people all around me. And perhaps the worst thing is this. I can't even blame St Paul, because I should have twigged from Galatians that Paul believed the church is led by the Spirit, not by the written code from centuries ago. I don't think St Paul would have been very impressed if he'd heard me quoting his words as law 2,000 years later as though they were God's permanent rules. So I'm a theologian and this is the biggest theological failure of my life. And if you're going to listen to this podcast, then I need to come clean and you need to know this. I'm going to give you my opinion on all sorts of church issues. But I'm not really coming to you as a prophet who brings the good sense of God. Perhaps I'm the opposite of a prophet. 
When the Holy Spirit sings, I turn the signal off. When the wind of the Spirit blows, I close the window. I have a terrible track record. If I was offering you a financial investment, I'd have to give you the wealth warning. Listen to me and you might lose all your money. So what has it done to me fighting this battle? Losing and then thinking I wasn't even fighting on the right side. Well, yes, it's humbled me. I'm less confident in my own sense of judgment. I'm probably more willing to sit on the fence, quicker to say, I don't know. More willing to doubt myself and to question the received wisdom of any group I'm part of. One of the novels I read in this period was Remains of the Day by Kashio Ishiguru. We meet the butler, Stevens, who found a lot of personal satisfaction in serving Lord Darlington in managing the staff at Darlington Hall. He's a slightly repressed character who cannot talk about his own feelings about the woman he's developing a relationship with. Many of the men I fought women's ordination alongside were slightly repressed and found it difficult to talk about anything to do with women. But what really spoke to me about the book, which was made into a film in this period, is that Stephen slowly realises over time the man he's given his life to serving was not a good man. He was one of those English upper-class men who were a bit too close for comfort to the Nazi regime of the 1930s in Germany. By the time of the story in 1958, his master has been discredited as something of a traitor and an anti-Semite. Now, I don't say that my conservative evangelical clergy friends were bad people. I think they were good people who I enjoyed close comradeship with. But I read this book and watched this film in that period of the mid-1990s when I was starting to feel that perhaps I'd not fought on the right side. The presenting issue was women's ordination, but there were a whole raft of issues where we conservatives railed against the world and went against the grain. Stevens had been slightly over-deferential to his upper-class lord, and the conservative clerical cabal I was part of was dominated by upper-class men who'd been to boys' boarding schools. But I'd been educated alongside girls all the way through, so I really should have known better. You know by now that I always have a pop song that goes with every key event in my life. And the song for this period, in the aftermath of women's ordination, was the song by R.E.M., Losing My Religion. The chorus goes... That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion. The third person voice is important. I felt I was watching someone else in the wreckage of their religion. It wasn't the end of my Christian faith, but it was the end of that religious vision that I'd worked to for many years. It really wasn't a minor cultural change for people like me. It was the end of a way of life. My understanding of ministry went 
my religion was shot apart. I suppose this was about the time when my own ability to do ordained ministry started to unravel. But I'm not asking for your sympathy. If anything, our sympathy should go to the women who had to fight so hard to win over slow learners like me. I think there was an issue of justice in there. Women have always done the bulk of the work in every church I've ever been to, most of it hidden and unglamorous. To keep them out of the pulpit and vicarage was plain wrong. The feminist, who's often got under my skin with her shots at masculine privilege, is Germaine Greer. She was asked about power and gender in the church, and she pointed out that as long as the male pope has his underwear washed by female nuns in the Vatican, then it's clear the church is sexist and misogynist. Ouch. But I fear she's right. I fear the Church of England has been excessively accommodating to the opponents of women priests and now women bishops for far too long. Allowing them to pick their own male bishops I think is spiritual and structural nonsense that weakens the organisation. I think it's time to remove the special measures that allow some clergy men to avoid clergy women. On another day, we may come back to the subject of gender and ministry and look at how women in ministry have changed the church. But the point for today is simply that they are right to be there. And I was wrong to hold them back. We used to have in our home a tea towel that put it rather well. This was in the last century, long before the discussion about Wibby bishops. The tea towel was purple and it said, a woman's place is in the house of bishops. So I have to admit that that tea towel's theology was better than mine. If there is some small benefit that comes from being on the wrong side of the angels, it's this. I have a highly tuned sensitivity to how easily Christians can be wrong. I'm acutely aware of how some of our most strongly held beliefs can be badly wrong, damaging to ourselves and to others around us. Because I've been there and got the t-shirt. Religious belief can set us free, but can hold us back and back us into a corner. Theology can make very intelligent people think and do stupid things. So, please join me again next week as we try to be a little less stupid and perhaps even a bit wiser. Thank you for listening to episode 6. If you're starting to get fun up of all this personal information, well, we're getting towards the end of my introducing myself. Please join me next week when I tell you what benefit I've got from church. <laughs>